Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast i have a great episode for you today his name is mark dodson and he's a producer and engineer out of the uk his career has spanned decades he's worked with massive artists including judas priest joe cocker Joan Jett, Suicidal Tendencies, Anthrax, and tons of others. I introduce you, Mark Dodson. All right, Mark Dodson, welcome to the URM podcast. Thank you. How's lockdown treating you? Uh, I have to ask, I'm sorry. Very interesting, yeah, of course. No, interesting, really. I quite enjoyed it to start with, to be honest. I was like, just, I treated it as a holiday, really. Just took time off. But actually, in a way, it was very beneficial too, because... I was mixing um, a new album by Aki Kijo, which I recorded in November in El Paso. We were going to mix it there, but I... Sonic Ranch? Yes. What yeah. a great place that is. Oh, yes. Oh, that's a trip. But fantastic. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. And Tony, the guy that owns it, is a lovely guy too. Absolutely. You know, and the equipment there is ridiculous. And, and being old school, it made me feel quite at home, you know. So uh, we recorded it there, and the plan was to mix it in the same period of time, but it was just time-wise, it was impossible. So I brought it home, and I I was quite grateful to have brought it home because it gave me a lot more time to mix it, and I mixed it uh, using Logic, which isn't really, you know, that's not my history. So I had to learn Logic, basically, which, you know, I swore a lot at Logic during that time. You know, there's a lot of swearing going on and asking it why it thought it should be doing that, etc. But you know, it, eventually, you know, it worked out great. And I was I was happy with that. But lockdown suited that for me. You know, that was a real bonus. And I'm great friends with a master and engineer called Greg Calby, who to me is the greatest master and engineer in the world. And um, it enabled me to send, because I wasn't sure of the sound of the room and the blah, blah, blah which is all important when you're mixing, obviously. Um, I got to send my mixes to Greg and he'd say, oh, this bit of it's a bit screwed or that bit's a bit screwed. And so I then finally tuned how what I was listening to and I got a fix on what I was doing and eventually all the mixes were, I'd send him a mix and he'd go, you got it now, you've got the frequencies, that's all great. So in answer to your question, yeah, it, it, uh, I utilised that time quite well. I was quite happy that it happened really. 
not I'm not happy that it happened to everybody else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> that, that's what I've been saying too. When people ask me how it's going, I feel kind of guilty uh, if I say that it's going well because <laughs> I know that there's so much suffering in the world. Absolutely. But that said, I feel like it's one of those things where if you're unfortunate enough to get it or have your work destroyed, it really, really sucks. But there's a group of people who aren't going to get it Mm -hmm. and whose jobs aren't going to go away. And those people have a choice whether or not they want to utilize the time or not. Yeah. And I think that there's no, there's no excuse. If, if you've got your health and you've still got work, then, and you're not using this time to do something good with it, then I don't know. Well, it's a mistake, isn't it? Maybe I'm a judgmental prick, but what are you doing? You know, everybody gets situations thrown at them throughout life, you know, in so many, many different ways. And um, if you don't take them and use them to your advantage, then you live in fear, you know, and living in fear is, is no good. You've got to, it's hard because when you're a kid, you're 20 years old, you don't have fear. As you get older, you know, you start to learn what fear might be. You know, you worry about paying for this or paying for that or how am I going to do this? How do I do that? So when you're young and you have no fear, you do everything you want to do and, and you go gung-ho for it. And that's a great thing. And I always encourage my kids to think like that. And I try to convince myself that that's the way to carry on thinking forever. There's no point in not thinking like that. You've got to keep pushing for whatever it is your dream may be. And, the, you know, dreams come and go, but they... You know, I still have dreams about what I want to do with my life and what I want to, what I want to achieve musically. You know, as far as making records is concerned, and I, and I'm still pushing to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's like you say, you've got to use it to your advantage. Uh, that's it, not always easier said than done, obviously. Well, yeah, definitely not always easier said than done. But I do think some people are pre-wired to be more fearless, but. I don't think that if you're born as a fearful person that it's necessarily a prison sentence. You can you can choose to ignore it. I'm, I'm just out of curiosity. Is that when you were, say, 20, like you brought up, was going for things totally second nature for you? Just dream it and do it? Absolutely. Totally. Because I was, I, you know, I left school when I was 16. One day I was went to school and it's so different now, but one day I went to school and... Um, I always remember this. There were a bunch of kids at one end of the hall and another bunch at the other end of the hall. And I walked in and I said, what's going on? You know, what's happening today? And somebody said, that bunch of kids are staying and that bunch of kids are leaving. And I was like, what, leaving school? They're like, yeah, okay. So I looked at the kids who were leaving. and Just leaving? Yeah, just leaving like that. Like one next, and I I looked at the bunch of kids and I liked the kids that were leaving. So I said, fuck (laughs) it, I'll leave. And that was it. And I went home and said to my parents, left school today. And they said, well, you better get a job then. (laughs) <laughs> where did they go we just all left school and went back and went to work you just just stopped school and got a job was that a normal thing or looked down on at all or i'll say something that i've noticed this is like maybe 285 episodes in and the amount of people that i've talked to who left high school it's just amazing how many people have made music careers that dropped going to school but at least here there's a stigma associated with it like if if you were to do it for a music career and then the music career didn't work out be rough rough business uh is it the same way in england 
Yeah. Nobody seemed to care one way or the other what I did. And I didn't consciously do it to start a music career. I just did it because I wanted, I thought, well, they're leaving, I'm leaving. And, and I went off and did a couple of different jobs, you know, before. But I was doing these jobs and I had the dream of working in a studio. That was like a dream to start work. And, and fortunately, um, I went to a studio one day and they said to me, I was just looking around, they said, oh, there's a studio opening up the road. And I went went to the studio and it was in Battersea. It was a studio called Rample. And it wasn't finished. It was half built. And I walked in there. I mean, this is crazy, really. I walked in there and and there was uh, a guy called Serrano. His name was Serrano. And another guy called John Wolfe. And I walked in there. I was just a kid, probably 20 years old. And they were like, I said, is there any jobs going? And they said, what what can you do? And I said, I don't know. I can probably put tapes on a machine. And they chatted to me for about 10 minutes. They said, okay, well, when do you want to start? And I was like, well, I've got to quit my other job. Where I, when I was getting 26 quid a week at the other job. And they said, well, we'll give you eight pound a week. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, eight pound a week. I said, fuck it. Yeah, I'm coming. And that was it. And I left there and I went to work there and it transpired, obviously, to be the best thing I ever did because it was the Who's recording studio. Did you know that at the time? No, I had no idea. Fortunate move to pick that one. Oh, totally. And and when I went to work there, I was, at the same time, I was helping them build it, you know, while they were still in the middle of building it. So I was kind of helping build. And then finally, you know, I became an assistant engineer overnight. There was no protocol. Wasn't yet, there was no being a runner. Or I just became a, I was both really, I was a T-boy and assistant engineer, general dog's body. And, um, the first session that ever happened that I worked on there was, it was, I remember it was Princess Anne's wedding day and the pub stayed open late till midnight. And um, Joe Cocker was meant to be coming in to record and he was meant to be there at nine o'clock. So we're all sitting waiting for Joe Cocker and at 12 o'clock midnight or just after, and this is gospel truth, a band came on the door and we opened the door and Joe Cocker just went, Flat on his face on the floor, like pissed as a fart, completely drunk. <laughs> like through uh, the door? Yeah, literally. We opened the door and he just <laughs> fell on the floor. And the guys picked him up and carried him into the control room and laid him down. And they set up all the instruments and started making music. And about four in the morning, they had a backing track and they woke him up. And they said, Joe, we've got a backing track, you know. And he's like, woke, got himself together, went out and, and sung. And I was, I was just completely gobsmacked. I mean, he was incredible. He had all the arms moving and all that shit that he used to do. And he sang incredible. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is the life. You know, this is what it's all about. So it's like he just, like the switch just got flipped on the moment you put him in the, in the situation. Absolutely. That was the beginning of it for me because that so many amazing bands and artists and people came through that studio. You know, they did the film, they did all the music for Tommy there, they did Quadrophenia there, and then Thin Lizzy did all their records there, um, Motorhead, and I, I was working with I was working with Joan Jett doing Bad Reputation album, Ken Laguna producing it, and um, Richie Cordell and... Um, I was doing Joan Jett and Judas Priest, whilst my buddy Will, who started at the same time as me, he was doing Thin Lizzy and, and Motorhead. You know, so this studio had just like this huge, high-quality calibre of artists coming. I mean, everybody was there at one time or another, literally, except for Mick Jagger, I think. it's the only one that never came through there. But I saw everybody in there, everybody. Did you appreciate at the time what a crazy 
way to start that was, or did it take till later to for yeah, it to definitely. dawn on you that holy shit, yeah. that's not a yeah. normal start? Uh, absolutely, it wasn't till later that I was sitting there, and I, you know, after working at other studios like A and M in Los Angeles, where they had runners, where you had to be a runner for a year before you earn the wings to become an assistant engineer, I think. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I just walked into the studio and there I was rubbing shoulders with the likes of Pete Townsend, you know, Keith Moon, Eric Clapton. Just, I mean, everybody came through that place. And, and, but it didn't phase me. That was the beauty of it all. I didn't get, I didn't get phased by it because I was a cheeky little fucker anyway. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and they... They treated me as such. I mean, there was a time when I went out into the studio and Pete Townsend was out there and he was just jamming on his acoustic with a guy from the rock pile, Dave Edmonds from the rock pile. They were both jamming and they used to have a bar at the end of the studio where you could get a drink. And I was the tape operator, literally. And I went down and I got a drink and as I was walking back, <laughs> Pete and Dave Edmonds are jamming around on their acoustic guitars and the guitars were open, cases were open on the floor. And I took 2P out of my pocket and threw it in Pete Townsend's guitar case. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and he said, you cheeky little cunt. <laughs> he didn't Man. fire me. <laughs> Ballsy. Yeah, it didn't find me, so I, I think he kind of, they kind of appreciated people that had a little bit of spunk about them, you know? I was about to ask, what since you didn't have any experience and basically just walked into this pretty high-level situation kind of off the street, how or why do you think they let you stay? I got on with them all. They were cruel to me. The people that worked at the studio, they, had, they didn't let you in easily. They were kind of clicky. I kept pushing to do what I wanted to do. And I was, you know, they didn't hate me. They didn't dislike me. They took the piss out of me and they... It's a start not to hate you. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I remember at one point they all befriended me and they were all talking to me and I thought, damn, they finally they finally liked me. And they said, come sit over here and we'll have a chat about this. And I was sitting there. And then, of course, a fucking big bucket of water fell on my head. They'd just been conning me and sitting there and thinking I was their friend. It was like initiation process. But I got through it and, and, and they accepted it. And if I was out of line, they put me straight about certain things. So John Wolf, who's the Who's Road Manager, was kind of quite a, a fearsome-looking character. And, and if you did step out of line, he would tell you you stepped out of line. But he didn't mind me. He quite liked me, you know, and we got on all right. So I, I was lucky like that. I feel like that's probably the most important thing a young kid can possibly do is learn learn how to get along because the skills part, I mean, you got to learn them both, but you can learn a skill. That's that's way, way easier. I've spoken to so many producers who say that when they're hiring an engineer or an intern, they'd rather take somebody who knows zero but can hang out and is totally cool than someone who knows everything but is awkward to be around. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's... You, you, it's your job to try and make people feel comfortable and, and at ease with, and it, it, sometimes you've got to be invisible, uh, and and that's fine too. You know, you've got to learn to be invisible as well, and just get on with what you've got to get on with, and do it to the best of your ability. And, and the beauty of it was that a lot of different artists came through that studio, so I got to work with, you know, obviously I worked with Glyn Johns and I worked with Ron Neverson and a guy called John Punter who did all Roxy Music stuff, and and all these producers that came through one after the other of different bands uh, and, and and I had to learn to to be able to deal with them all and all their different personalities and all the band's different personalities so it, it, it was 
it wasn't difficult to do. It was quite easy to slot in with everybody. And yet you had to be careful. I mean, I, I'm, Glyn Johns caught me one time and I was kind of saying, he caught me behind his back saying how, what a fussy fucker he was. And I didn't know he was hearing me. And he just said to me, all right, let's go outside. And I said, oh, shit. He's a big geezer. He's going to kick the fuck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? And then this guy Serrano stood it, stepped in. He said, no, 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 no. He said, don't be like that. You know, la, la, la. And we smoothed it out. And it was cool because Glyn Johns used to, dropped me off on the way home because he lived in a, he had a great big Cadillac with a number plate LP1. He was a flashbacker. (laughs) (laughs) And and he used to drop me off at the end of my road on the way home because he lived on the way out where I lived. And we used to chat about music and stuff like that. So I learned my lesson, you know, you keep your mouth shut. And if you can, like my mum said, if you haven't got something good to say about somebody, don't say anything at all. And that's when I realized she was right. (laughs) (laughs) How long did it take before they were trusting you with actual audio stuff? Well, I was immediately an assistant engineer, right? So that meant that I was obviously as as a tape operator, whatever you want to call it. That was all the microphones set up, all all the the tapes and looking after all that, keeping, lining up the tape machines, keeping the machines clean, et cetera, et cetera, and doing all that side of it. Man, you had to learn that pretty fast, though. Well, yeah, I mean, I learned it in a matter of days, pretty much. And and then, because I was so keen, you know, there were engineers coming in. There was one engineer called John Jansen, who's an American chap, great engineer. And I used to ask him so many questions. I mean, I wouldn't stop asking questions of, of all the engineers. Well, how did you do that? Why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. So I got my head around it. And so I learned how everything worked. I wanted to know. And you know, when you want to know something, it's quite, it's easy to learn if you want to learn it because yep. you you're possessed by it. And I was possessed with knowing how everything worked. It was all very well knowing how a desk worked, but actually making it sound good. That's a completely new story. That's completely different because you you just don't know, you know. So, but they were called the boys at the studio. They let you go in there when no one else was in there and just mess around with sound. We recorded ourselves. We made up songs. We messed around in the studio when it was empty. They let me bring in like the guys from the pub. I got them to come down and do some, and I learned by working on on, on that stuff. And, and then eventually, I became an engineer, which was you know again it probably took me about a year before I was actually entrusted to clients would come in and I would make records for them. And, and we were lucky because... So That's a, fast. It is fast. And I was lucky though, because there was, um, as I say, a lot of different people coming in and out, in and out. So the two engineers that we had used to get a bit tired, so we'd get a breaks to, for me and Will to try our skills out. A couple of Icelandic guys came to the studio to, to do some recording and I was allotted the session. And I got on great with these guys at, and I made the records for them. And eventually they flew me to Iceland to work on records as well. And we ended up doing a children's album. These guys are still making music in Iceland. And we finished off this children's album. And to this day, the children's album is still the biggest selling album ever in Iceland. So it was kind of cool, you know. And we're still in touch as well. We still talk, which was amazing. So that helped me learn my trade. I think I was pretty shit. I don't think I was very good. I mean, you might think you were shit, but did other people think so? I don't think they did, fortunately, because I... That's what matters. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know I'm a lot better than I was now, but, uh, you know, I still listen to that sort of thing now and again. It, it wasn't that terrible, you know. It, was, it worked. It sold records, so kind of been that bad. How long did it take from where you would consider yourself, an, you know, a working engineer to mm-hmm. where heavy music started to become, you know, 
I at least got on your radar or become like the focus? I guess that was really when I did, um, when Judas Priest came in and we did Sin After Sin, that album. And uh, I was the engineer and they had a one, one guy came in to be a producer and they weren't sure who the producer was going to be. Then he got fired. Roger Diver came in, but I kept the job as an engineer. Were they big yet? People were saying that they it was they were about to break. Everybody said this album's going to break this band. So they were well known. They were well known and they were starting to they were just starting to bubble up quite big. And Simon Phillips came and played drums on that album, which even to this day people go on about how amazing his drums were. I, that was the first heavy album I did, you know. And of course, the art of getting heavy guitar sounds is is an art in itself. And I don't think we really got the heaviest sounds in the world on the guitars at that time, but we captured what they were all about. And the album did all right. And it's still people still talk about the album to this day. And uh, and that really began um, a friendship to myself and Glenn Tipton that has lasted. What, 40 years, something like that. I don't know, we've been friends for like 45 years, something like that. Just out of curiosity, I've always wondered about this. I know that heavy guitars especially sound very different now than they did then, but I'm more, since I wasn't around for that, what I'm wondering is, was the feeling similar? Like even back then, even if, Relative to now, it's not the heaviest thing in the world. Back then, did it feel that way? Did it feel like you were making the heaviest guitar tone, the heaviest sounds? It had a uniqueness about it. There's no doubt that there was. it was very different from the way other people constructed their songs and, and the way that the guitars were played because they were so almost percussive. Um, so as opposed to maybe like a Joan Jett record where the guitars were more jangly and open and, and breathed more, it, it definitely had a, a different feel. And lyrically, it, it was more intense. So it was more, it was darker lyrically. The, the whole thing was a different genre from anything else that came through there. Um, and re- regarding the guitar tones, obviously over the years, guitar tones evolved and got better and better. But the, the guitar players got better and better and they also became more aware of what the fact that guitar sound was not just my responsibility, but initially and probably ultimately, the guitar sound is the guitar player's responsibility. <laughs> yes, it sure is. You know, well, it should be, really. But, you know, we're still always striving for, an, you know, Glenn particularly was always striving for the heaviest sound, you know, and we would always work on it and work on it. Even, you know, when we did Defenders of the Faith and, and I did Glenn's solo album, we, he was still striving for this sound that I think was a, a, a little bit like a holy grail for him. I don't know if he ever really got it. But, Do you um, ever get it? I, I don't know. I, it was weird because, like, Anthrax, they, when I did Anthrax, they, they just had a big fire in their warehouse and they'd lost a lot of equipment and they were concerned about the sound. And But there was one cabinet one amp that worked with Scott's rhythm set that was Scott's rhythm sound that amp and that cabinet when you put them in and plug them in and you put the microphones on it and you, you blended it a little bit there was the sound it was there it was it was we were fortunate that that cabinet didn't get destroyed in the fire basically and that amp hadn't so and obviously the way he plays you know you you, you get five guitar players playing the same part and it would sound different with every single one of them just because of the way they play yeah, it's uh I've known that for a long time, but 
uh, one of the times that I remember, it's one of those things that you know, but you forget, I think, because you can go on tone quests and <laughs> new gear is always sexy, but, uh, but it always comes back to the guitar player. I remember like 10 or more years ago, my, my band was playing some shows with Slayer and I remember Carrie King did the sound check. He's the only guy that showed up from his entire band for the sound check. So he just sound checked for two hours straight and he just played two of their albums back to back, start to finish. And again, it was just his guitar and it sounded identical to the records, like identical, everything about it from like the minor little fuck ups to like the little Carrie King isms. It sounded just like him. And it was just, it was one of those moments where it was like, yeah, that's right. It, that's what it is. It's who the player is at the end of the day. So I'm sure that you could have plugged a bunch of people into Scott's rig and it wouldn't sound like Scott. No, it certainly wouldn't. It just wouldn't because of the way he played, the physical action of the way he played. And yet, oddly enough, Charlie wrote the riffs. It wasn't like Scott wrote the riffs. Charlie wrote the riffs. Mm -hmm. So, And then Scott interpreted them in the way that he played them. So between the two of them, and, and this is true of all music and, and bands, there's a catalytic magic, a magic that happens between the members of a band that create their sound. You know, it's not just, it's not where you put the microphone. It's, it could be a million different things, but it's, it's the magic of a band that makes them sound the way they sound. So like Priest without Rob Halford is just a no-no. <laughs> you know, it's just not, it doesn't matter if the guy, if they got Tim Ripper or anybody else, it's just a no-no because it's, it's that magic combination. Have you ever been producing a session where you helped a band figure out that magic combination of better if that person just writes it and that person plays it? Or have you noticed that most of the really incredible artists you've worked with had that figured out coming in? I, I, don't, I don't think anybody had it consciously figured out. I don't think anybody consciously knew. They just knew what they did, each one of them within the band mm -hmm. and oddly enough it's it's and it's happened to me on a lot of occasions where that magic you you, you set it all up and you're listening to the band and they're working on a song and you might mess with the arrangement on certain songs which i did on you know different bands some bands you do some bands you don't some bands you have to leave it till later to fuck with the arrangement etc etc but the point i'm making is they could all be playing and this goes from I heard it with The Who, with Keith Moon drumming, to Suicidal Tendencies, to Bow Wow Wow, to Ugly Kid Joe, to whoever you like to mention. They'd be playing and it didn't sound right. And I'm going, you know, and I'm struggling, trying to fix the sound, trying this, try that, try. And then all of a sudden, they played as a band and the magic happened and the sound physically changed when they hit that pocket, which is the pocket that a band has that makes them special and, and and you can't touch it you can't you can't contrive it you you don't know you don't it's impossible to to it, it's just a magic with suicidal there was an occasion when we were getting nowhere one day absolutely nowhere and i said to the boys come on let's just go for a drive we got out of the studio and we went somewhere and, and had a bit of fun for a few hours and when we came back we got five tracks just because their their brains and, and i 
freed their minds up from the constrictions of the studio and they came back and boom, five backing tracks in as long as it took to play the five backing tracks. And it was magical. Uh, so it's, 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 it's impossible to, to describe it. It's just like, but that's why I don't like working with a click because the click inhibits that and stops that. And I don't, I'm like, no click, no click at all. And, and that's, you know, it's just the way I am. And it's like, it's, it's been like that forever. I actually think no click is making a comeback. I think it has to come back. It has to. The other kid job I just done has got no click. There was a, one song that Dave Fortman wrote on it, which he wrote at home, which we overdubbed onto, which was done to a click. But <laughs> the rest of it's no click at all. And I'm like, I just like, they go, let's try a click. And I go, no, we're not fucking trying a click, right? No click. You're a drummer, you're a guitar player, you've got a pocket. That's make you what you are. You sing, you do this, you do that. When you're all together, you score a goal. Simple as that. And then they did, and they did. I think that when uh, people who came up with DAWs in the digital era realized that you can add a click after the fact, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that I think that when that knowledge started to spread, I think that that's when the no click thing started to actually come back because I don't think anyone can make the ar- argument against. I think the fact, I know music's subjective, but I still think it's a fact that records felt better before clicks became, yeah. you know, the norm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but they just had a better ebb and flow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you need to fix something within that ebb and flow, you can always, it's almost part of the fun finding a way to make that work. You know, to say, okay, well, how are we going to make that bit fit in there if that went like that? And that went, I, I don't know. It's just something that I've. I learned a lot from Tom Allen when we did uh, Judas Priest together as well, and, and little ideas. And we used to fly stuff in on tapes. And I, I worked with a band called the Wild Hearts here in England, and we had. I can't remember the guitar player's name. He's dead now, but he played a solo on one of their demos, and they were like, "Oh, we want it on the final thing." And I was like, "Well, just start the song at the same tempo, and we'll fix it." And we did it. And I got the solo from the demo, and I went, "Watch!" And I put it on a tape machine. And I marked the tape and I counted it in and one, two, three, hit the button and popped it straight in and it fell straight into the pocket. And they went, whoa, man, that's fucking amazing. It is kind of amazing. Yeah, it was magic though. And I was like, well, it's meant to be then. It's happened. God's had something to do with that. (laughs) That's the way I see it. (laughs) So I think that the big asterisk or requirement is that you need to be able to play and have a pocket to begin with. So if, uh, if you don't have that pocket that you're talking about, then there's nothing to save you. There's no parachute, but uh, so I think that a lot of people, a lot of artists who don't have that, haven't worked to that point, have skipped lots of steps, you know, and I'm not trying to talk shit about modern methods. I think everything's got its place. Absolutely. But everything also has a price, like we were talking about earlier mm. with about medication. I think the price of the modern methods is that sometimes you can skip you can skip steps and ditch some of the fundamentals like playing with pocket, for instance. Yeah. 
And I, I agree, you know, I, I wouldn't... There's certain musics that obviously are all recorded to a click and, and that's good for them. And if they're happy, then so be it. You know, and I think that in those cases, the vocal is pretty much the one thing that gives it the character that helps it to to become special in its own right. Um, but you're 100% right. And, and I think that's... You know, in life, you meet lots of different people that do different jobs, and there's not enough people that are conscientious about what they do, and a lot of them, that's because they do jobs that they hate. And the one thing that I notice with 99% of musicians is that they're so proud and so happy to have that ability, and they're so keen to prove that they're the best, and they work so hard that they will they they create that themselves. You know, it's like you don't... It's like drummers want to be great. They, you know, drummer want, the bass player wants to be great. You know, they, they really want to be as good as they possibly can. And so when you're in the studio working with them, they, they come, they do their best work the majority of the time. Not all the time, obviously. But it, it's just nice that you know that you're working with people that give it, they're giving every bit of their heart and soul to what they're doing. So that in itself makes it valid. And if you can make that work, then you know it's going to be good. Is that kind of a common trait that you've noticed with all these, I'd call them mega artists you've worked with, that they all had that that drive to be, I mean, I, I kind of compare it to Olympic athletes yeah. almost. It's like an insane kind of drive that is, it's unreasonable, but they have no choice about it. It's it's, it's yeah. ba- baked in. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's true. Uh, um, well, drummers are such a, a good example of that because they're such weird personalities. Invariably, you know, they're quite they kind of have to be. Yeah, they're almost like um, stand-up comics. You know, they're kind of two different people a lot of the time. I think it's so interesting to watch people play off of great drummers. Really good. If you've got a good drummer, it ups everybody's game. It's like bringing on the star quarterback, you know. It's like it just makes everybody play better. And, and, and that breeds through the rest of the band to create that little bit of magic. But, yeah, it, it's a delight when it's like that. And, and invariably, it's Charlie Bernani's killer drummer, you know, fantastic drummer. Um, and I've been lucky to work with lots of great drummers. Um, obviously, Simon Phillips was great with Judas Priest. And... There was um, Ugly Kid Joe's drummer was a good drummer, and then they got Shannon Larkin in, who was a fucking great drummer as well. So I was lucky to work with lots of really good drummers, uh, uh, and that really helped. That helped, you know, just uh, the drummer from Bow Wow Wow, a unique style, you know. The first time he played a snare drum was on I Want Candy. He'd never played a snare drum before. And Ken Laguna, the producer, says, I want you to play a snare drum. And he's, they're like, I don't play snare drums. Snare drum? drum. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, he only did tom-toms. He never hit. He never even had a snare drum up until that moment when we did I Want Candy, which, you know, was a magic moment. Again, a great band, fantastic pocket. So, yeah, it's a very interesting conundrum because it's it's so untouchable. You can't tie it down. You can't go, well, that's wrong because nothing's wrong. It can't be wrong. Almost like mistakes are good. I've always felt that I always say to a band, if you're going to play, don't play like you're frightened. Play like you don't care if you fuck up. Because if you do fuck up, we'll do it again. You know, go for it. And it might be an amazing mistake. It might be one of them, like Rocky would suicidal, played a guitar part. I said, you fuck that up there. You fuck that bit up there. And he went, oh, yeah, but I'll never fuck it up like that again. So let's keep it. <laughs> and I'm like, cool, let's keep it. I'm happy with that. I like that attitude. Uh, speaking of I Want Candy and 
I guess, songs that ended up making, I would say, a massive impact. Did you know at the time that you were working with something special? Like, was there an air about it or was it a surprise? I didn't know. I knew the band were really good. I guess you can't ever foresee that happening. No, I don't think you can. I don't think I've ever made a record and gone, right, that's going to be a hit. Because I, I, I just never ever, I don't think of music like that. I might go, I like it, but I wouldn't. It's like, I, I didn't know Cats in the Cradle was going to be a huge hit. I just didn't know. And I didn't, I, I knew that Lights, Camera, Revolution was a great record because I loved it. But I didn't know whether everybody else would love it. So like, I, I went in a pub in London just like three days ago because the pubs are open here, which we're glad to see. There's a couple of blokes in there playing some heavy music. And they don't know who I am. They don't know what I've done in my life at all or anything about me. And I just got chatting to them about this, that, and the other. And they were being a little bit, you know, obtuse, if you like. And I just said, oh, I love suicidal tendencies, actually. And I went and sat outside in the bar, outside to have a beer. And they came around out and they grabbed me and they brought me back in. And they were playing You Can't Bring Me Down in the pub. And I was like, wow, that rules, dude. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. They didn't know that it had anything to do with it. And I, I, went, I said, now, how fucking great is that? And they were like... Yeah, it's pretty damn good. <laughs> so I was happy, you know, that sort of made me happy. Do you get lots of moments like that? Uh, not as many as I'd like. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's less common for producers than musicians. Yeah. You're reminding me of something that I remember Sean Connery saying about when they were doing Dr. No, that they thought it was going to fail and he thought it was going to fail. Wow, but He really? did it anyways. But then after it became the biggest thing on earth, everybody except for him, started saying, oh, we knew it was going to be huge. <laughs> and he just kept on saying in interviews, nobody knew it was going to be huge. Anyone that's saying that was lying. Everybody was totally scared and was taking a massive, massive risk, but thought it was cool. So they did it anyways. And I think that's the best way to do something. If you, if you, if you like it and you love it and you just do it, you, know, you have no expectations of it, then you know, everybody fears, don't they? Everybody has fear of one thing or another. The reason I worked with Suicidal was because the first time I ever heard them, I thought, these guys are fucking amazing. I just loved it. I wasn't like analyzing the music. I just listened to the vibe of it all. And the, you just dug it. Yeah, it was just like, whoa, this is incredible. War inside my head. You know, I was like, whoa, that's fucking incredible. And, and and I was fortunate enough to work with them, to be honest, because they they were one of the best bands I ever worked with. Mike Muir is an inspirational guy. Robert Trujillo, who, you know, me and Robert are still best mates and still chat. And we've got a little project that we're working on on the side called Mass Mental, which is very interesting as well. He's done okay. He's done great. He's a, he's yeah, a great just guy. Just okay. Yeah, yeah. He's a lovely guy, Robert. He really is a great guy. That's what everyone... I know who knows him has said is I, I haven't heard anybody say anything even half a percent negative about him. He's amazing. He's an absolutely lovely guy. And, and oh, me and him are just like, we're just like best buddies. You know, every so often we catch up and we have a little chat because he's stuck in his, in his quarantine in America, which I know is worse over there than it is over here at the moment. It's pretty bad. Yeah, I know. I've been reading about it. I'm like, oh my God, I'll, wouldn't want to be in that situation. It's scary. Um, but, yeah, me and Robert, we, we get on great. And he's introduced me to, like, he introduced me to Amar Sabaleko, who's, uh, I don't know if you know Amar Sabaleko, is a not. ridiculous jazz bass player. Well, him and Robert jam together all the time. And, uh, and of course, Robert's son, Ty, who's a ridiculous bass player as well. I mean, he's ridiculous. 
looks like Robert, just a, a miniature Robert. He's <laughs> <laughs> a ridiculous bass player, ridiculous. So Robert's introduced me to all those people. In fact, it was Robert that said to me, when we started the Mass Mental Project, he said, we've got to find a singer. And um, Wit was kind of penciled in from Ugly Kids to do a bit, but, but, um, and he did a bit and he still does do a bit with those guys. But there was a guy called Benji Webb who's in a band called, they were called Dub War then, and now they're called, he's got a band called Skindred. Now, Benji comes from Wales. It's a black guy from Wales, and he's, he's an fucking amazing singer. I don't know if you've ever heard Skindred, but they are. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's Benji. So he introduced me to Benji, so we just get him to come and sing on stuff. So funnily enough, Benji just sent me a, a text today and asked me if I'd do a couple of mixes for him because he's been doing some Dub War stuff and would I do a couple of mixes for him? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely, Benji. So Robert's like, he, Robert's one of these guys that, that hears stuff and people and, and connections. So you get drummers like Brooks Wackerman. You know, he introduced me to Brooks Wackerman and Josh Freese, all these He's kind of a musician's musician. And kind of a musical director as well. And I think that's why he works so well within Metallica. I mean, he's such a, a peacemaker, I think. It, so- it sounded like they needed, like, a grounding influence. Yeah, I think so. And and, and he's definitely that. And, and I think he raises their level. I think he makes them better because he's so good. That's another one of those stories where I don't think anyone could have predicted it. Uh, can you imagine from <laughs> from carrying bricks around a building site to where he is now? Oh, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, that must have been surprising to hear about. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was after suicidal. Obviously, went to Oz, went and joined Aussie. Then he got that opportunity, and because when he walked in to play with Metallica, Rob's the kind of guy who said, "I knew every fucking song they had. Didn't matter what song they were going to ask me to play. I knew it." He said, "And I knew it like that." So they obviously they couldn't. Not only does he look great, not only can he run around and got all the vibe and the persona and everything, but he plays like a crazy motherfucker as well. So he had every slap down, every little note down. He doesn't. He doesn't make mistakes, you know. And if he does, they're good ones. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting because he seems like such a humble dude, but no matter how humble or nice he is, he still went it into it like a total killer. Oh yeah, totally. He's, he was going to win that fight. There's no two ways about that. Robert's like that. Robert wants to. Robert always wants to win. Robert's 100% music, 110% music. His whole his whole soul is music. And on top of that, he's a lovely dude as well. Do you think that that uh, that winning kind of spirit is crucial for sticking around a long time? I think the desire to 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 want to give musically is essential to sticking around a long time. I, I don't know if you have to. Say, uh, uh, it's not like you're trying to beat anybody by winning. It's just that you want to be successful and always want to be coming up with something. It's like, I think Bowie was one of those guys that always said, you know, they've got a time where Bowie wasn't happy with where he was anymore and he wanted to be more than where he was and always wanted to be more than where he was. Whether that was a a winning mentality or just just an attitude about being a great musician, I think think these, these guys are so wrapped up in what they do and, and it becomes such an obsession with them. You know, someone like Mike Muir is a great example of somebody that's totally obsessed by his music and what he's saying and what he's doing. I mean, 100% pure and honest all the way through. Not necessarily always right, but 100% pure and honest. And, and that stands him in good stead. Um, I, I don't know if he wants to 
win all the time, but I think he's the kind of guy that just wants people to stop and think about what he may be saying. So it, it's I'm not 100% sure about the have to win, but have to succeed maybe is the way of putting it. That's a good distinction, I think. Yeah. Maybe it's different too if you're, try, if you're trying to join somebody's band in an audition process versus being the David Bowie type where it is you. You are the, the, main, the main dude. Yeah. I think with, with Robert as well, the, um, you know, it's, it's like a, to me, bands are like football teams, soccer teams, whatever. If you get the right player in, it changes the whole team. And getting Robert into that team, you know, has given that team longevity and, and a reason to keep going as well and taking them on from where they were. And also, I mean, Robert and Kirk do this little thing where they come out the front of the station. I don't know if you've seen them recently, where they, they play songs from the area or, or that are, are pertinent to the town or the city or the country that they're in. And they do a little a 15-minute skip with these songs. Now, Robert, he researches all that. And goes away and finds. So if he might be playing in Prague or somewhere, somewhere in Europe, Eastern Europe, and he'll go and find out what the local song is, the local thing that everybody loves, and he'll get a copy of it and he'll work it out. And then him and Kirk will work out how to play it together, and they give it a Metallica twist, and they'll come to the front of the stage, and they do that on purpose to to get the audience into them and make them feel like they're part of it. Now that was Robert's idea initially, and Metallica love it because them fifteen minute break to sit around and do whatever they do for 15 minutes, wipe the sweat off because they're working hard. But it also gives the audience a much better feeling of participation. And I think that's quite inspirational on his part to have come up with that. He says it's quite quite difficult because they've got so many places that they're playing on a tour that he's always have to be a step ahead. And him and Kirk are always in hotel rooms learning it the night before. You know? <laughs> so it's a bit like by the seat of your pants, but all good stuff. It's amazing to hear that still at that level, they're not coasting. Oh, no, definitely not. I think you can feel that, though, can't you, when you, you see them? You can feel that, you know, yes, you know James absolutely. ain't coasting. You know, you can tell they're not coasting. They want to do... It's like, I, I mean, I, last time I saw the Rolling Stones, was, I think it was last year at Twickenham, and I swear to God, man, I just smiled for four, three hours. I, you know, Mick Jagger is just beyond. Oh, he, he doesn't coast at all. Holy shit. That guy, is, that guy is a force of nature. Isn't he? He's so good. I mean, he's got better. It's like a wine. Better. It's just got better and better. It's kind. It's kind of ridiculous, actually. It is. It's beyond. It's yeah, beyond. He. It's like he's going in reverse, like aging in reverse or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a lucky fucker. He's had a great life as well, hasn't he? Yeah. Quite. Quite the run for sure. You're not. You're not kidding. You're not kidding. And it's, it's that's that's another good. That's another thing. When there's a guy called Alexis Corner, an old blues singer, he found Rod Stewart and um, a few other people back in the day, and he was doing an album, an old blues album, down at Ramport back in the day, and he called Keith Richards up to come down and see if he'd play on it. And Keith Richards turned up, you know, and I'm like, oh my God, Keith Richards, this is fucking, this is the shit. <laughs> so Keith plugs his guitar in and Stevie Marriott turns up. I go, okay, so Stevie Marriott's there as well and they're playing away and they're both playing. And Stevie Marriott, <laughs> Stevie Marriott, was, he said, I won't tell you what sort of mischief they were up to at the same time, but whilst in the middle of the mischief, Stevie Marriott was trying to persuade Keith Richards to leave the Rolling Stones and join Humble Pie. And Keith Richards was like, yeah, 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 not bad idea, Steve. It's like, <laughs> no, I ain't doing that. <laughs> I ain't doing that. And then I swear to God, about two weeks later, 
I think Stevie Marriott, you know, God rest his soul, was obviously up on a bender and it was like four in the morning. We were about to leave the studio and he calls out, he says, I'm coming down, I'm coming down. He says, get the fucking stuff set up, I'm coming down. And we were like, we were like, we're, we're just about to go on. Don't give me that shit, I'm coming down. And so one of the guys said to him, I said, what? He says, call Pete Townsend. And if Pete Townsend calls us back in 10 minutes and says, it's all right, we'll wait for you. Naturally, we never heard another word. <laughs> so I don't think Stevie Marriott's going to be waking up Pete Townsend at four in the morning. So that's a good way to get out of it. <laughs> yeah, it was well done. Yeah. We were right there. Well done. <laughs> that was a crafty move. Yeah, well, you didn't want to be sitting there till seven in the morning, yeah. I mean, you probably would have been if... Oh, it'd have probably been till midday. So speaking of the schedule, that's kind of an interesting thing. I was actually thinking about this yesterday, how... I don't do crazy hours like that anymore like I used to. Do you still do that or have you gone to a reasonable schedule? Yeah, I, I, I would, I've never really done that anyway, very, very rarely, because the reason that people do that is because they're high. <laughs> yep. You know what I mean? That's why That's, they do that it. That is kind of what it was. <laughs> yeah, and then everything is great. Everything's fucking great. And it's like, well, actually, it's not. It's, you know, it's not great. I've always been months of like, Rapid. If something's amazing is happening, I'll keep going. If it's a band situation where we're trying to get tracks down, you know that there comes a time where you're not going to get any more backing tracks, no matter how hard you try. And you know that if you come back at 11 tomorrow morning, you'll get that backing track first take. And invariably, that's what happens. So, I, you know, I, I would not work crazy. I'd like, you know, I'd like to start about midday and work through, maybe have a bit of dinner, come back from dinner and do something a little bit more, get a little bit of inspiration going, have a beer or two, not get bladdered, obviously, because you can't do anything when you're bladdered. Just have maybe a beer just to relax and see if you come up with a new idea here or there and then midnight call it a day. I feel like when you're younger, it's a lot easier to get carried away with that kind of stuff. Is it something where you naturally kind of knew how to put on the brakes or is it something you had to learn as you got on? I had to learn because, you know, there, were, there was a lot of that around back in the day, a lot of it. And I'm sure there is still to this day, but... Not as much, I don't think. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Um, there was a lot about with different bands, most of the bands, uh, and invariably, well... I don't really remember much great coming out of it. Occasionally someone could smoke a joint and come out with something great, but if someone's putting half a pound of blow up there, no, there's a chance it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> you know, and, and, and everybody thinks it's great, and you're going, oh, I wish I wasn't here. I don't want to be here. So I, I kind of learned that early on at, at, at Rample because um, there was a, a one of the guys there, he, he learned how to make speed. He worked at the studio. He got banged up, put in prison for it in the end did eight years, but he was very, we called him Boffin. He was very, very clever bloke. And he worked out how, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. He was the guy that's in charge of all the lights and everything and, and the electrics and that. And there was one little button on the desk and it just said, silly button. And people used to say, what's that? And we'd say, don't push that button. <laughs> just don't push that button. And of course, everybody fucking pushed it. And when they pushed it, no matter what was playing or what was going on, the lights just went off, all the lights went psychedelic and all like 16 big fuck off JBLs all around the room went into like a war mode. It was like, wow, this noise just got crazy. And we would all sit there. And, uh, sometimes sometimes <laughs> we'd do it when someone was taking their first line of Charlie. they go, what does Charlie do? And so I like, take a line. <laughs> They'd do a line and someone would push the silly button. And when the lights all stopped and it came back to normal, we'd all be sitting there as if nothing had happened. And the guy go, <laughs> fucking hell. And you go, what? <laughs> What's the 
that. <laughs> it was the silly guy. button a high idea? Um, no, I, he didn't do it. I don't think he did drugs, that guy. It was the weirdest thing. So he just made them? He made this speed that was so strong. It, it was ridiculous. Eventually he got caught. He was making it in, in Scotland and the cops got him and they banged him up for eight years. I don't know what happened to him. I think he became a computer genius after that, but it was a funny time. <laughs> so actually an entrepreneur or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strange. So he just figured out how to make drugs, but didn't take them. That's, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess that's how he worked it out. It says for, for the love of science, right? Yeah, he was, a, he was definitely a boffin. And he used to wear a dog collar all the time as well. So he was a very trippy dude. <laughs> Sound, sounds like it. it my, my theory as to why it was more prevalent then is just because budgets are different now. And people, especially on the label side or management side or even musician to musician, producers feel this way too. They just are assuming a lot more risk. They're basically not getting paid to to deal with this kind of stuff anymore. So they don't put up with it. And I think back then they probably put up with it more because there was more money to put up with it. That's my theory though. I don't know if I'm right. Nah, you may well be right. I mean, obviously when a band got signed and they got loads of money going in their pockets or something, they thought they'd arrived, you know, and I was always of the mind that getting a record deal just meant the door just opened. It's time to start working. Exactly, exactly. Not start time to start thinking you're a rock star. So anybody that had that kind of rock star mentality, and then there were a couple of bands that I worked with where that was the mentality, and it was it it, it never ended well. It never ended well. Did you ever have a moment where you were like, "Whoa, I've made it," or you still feel like you're trying to make it? I think that some of the stuff I've done is is good and, and, and people get it and, it and it's helped people and it's made a, a difference to some people's lives, which I'm eternally grateful for. But I don't think I'm finished yet. I, I still think there's something that I haven't done yet. And I'm working hard to try and work out what that is uh, in, in today's world of music because it, it is different now. And as you so rightly say, the budgets aren't there, this isn't there. Whether, you know, I haven't, seen a, a young band and I'm sure they're out there that are as good as the the, the suicidals or or or, or the, the overall package isn't as good as the anthrax or this that or a band that I just look at and go, oh my God, these guys are fucking amazing. You know, these guys have definitely got it and, and wanted to work with them. And because I, I would work with any band if I believe that. And I wouldn't be like, right, you've got to pay me. I'd be like, well, work some deal out. If this happens, then it happens. But let's make records for making records' sake. And and I I still feel that I haven't. Maybe I have reached my pinnacle, but I'm hoping that I haven't. You know, I'm hoping I've been on a plateau, <laughs> but I need to get to the pinnacle still. I, I I haven't given up on that dream. Well, I mean, the first thing you talked about was learning how to use logic. I think the fact that you're still willing to learn new things says it all. In my opinion, that's kind of the difference between people who just stagnate and people who keep on getting better is it kind of go, it's kind of in opposition to itself to feel like you've arrived and then also keep trying to get better. It's like, you can't ever feel satisfied if you want to keep on getting better. No, you can't. It doesn't work together. No, it doesn't. I mean, there's times I hear bits of music that I've done 
like I said, when I heard you can't bring me down in the pub. And I was like, wow. And I remember, funnily enough, my brother lives in California and um, I and I don't know that he 100% knows what I do or don't. I mean, he knows I make records and stuff, but I just put, one day I was there and we were having a, a barbecue or whatever and I put it on. I put You Can't Bring Me Down on. And I saw him stop and start listening to it and he went, did you do this? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, fucking hell. And I was like, you get it. Oh, <laughs> well, right? you do and this for like, real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't, he's like, oh, you're, you're actually not just my little brother. You're all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they took this long to figure it out. Yeah, I know. Isn't that mad? So I'm still looking for the Holy Grail, just like Mike Muir is. Uh, have you always felt that way? Yes. So n- it never goes away? No. No, I'm, I'm, I'm always yearning to do, to do. I think you have to be like that. I agree. Otherwise, you won't, you're not going to get any better, are you? You've got to learn from people all the time. And I, I'm more than pleased to listen to what other people come up with. I'm not so arrogant as to say, well, you'll do it my way or no way, because that's like stupid. But I've, all along, I've learned from different people. I learned from, I did a record with a band called The Electric Love Hogs, a new, an LA band. And um, Tommy Lee came in co-produced a couple of songs with me. Good lad, Tommy. Good drummer, good bloke all around. Um, but I learned stuff off of him from sound point of view, you know, techniques of miking and stuff like that that I'd never known before. I learned off of Tom Allen, some great stuff as well. And obviously when I first started, I, you know, Glyn Johns was the, the, the leading record producer in the world. It's working with Zeppelin, The Who, The Stones, whatever. And he used to put three microphones on the drums. That was it. Three microphones. That was it. And I was like, I hadn't seen that before. So he had one on the bass drum and two overheads, which were the positioning of which was critical. So that was his sound. And that was, so people go, oh, I want my drums to sound like John Bonham. And I'm like, well, we're going to put three microphones on them. You play like John Bonham and you'll fucking sound like John Bonham. <laughs> that's the bottom line. Yeah, that that's kind of the tough part. Yeah, yeah, just a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember at one point where Keith Moon had, I swear to God, he must have had 15 tom-toms up on this big stand. And Pete Townsend said to Glenn, he said, Glenn, can we just put a microphone on the snare drum? And Glenn says, no, I don't do that. He goes, please, can we just put a microphone? Eventually he got his own way. And that's the only time I ever saw Glenn Johns put a microphone on the snare drum. So speaking of the Glenn Johns technique, like you said, it's super simple. Mm. And kind of comes down to the drummer. Is that is that basically the the point of it? Like capture this great musician and if the great musician isn't if it isn't a great musician then it's not going to work. Exactly, it's not going to sound good. It's designed to basically capture some capture greatness. Absolutely. So the way that the Mooney would hit the drums or Ginger Baker would hit the drums or, or any of those guys. You could listen to those guys. I walked into a club in Los Angeles, and there was some drums being played way in the back. I could just hear it, and I thought, that sounds like Ginger Baker. And it was Ginger Baker. And I just knew it because of my love of cream. Like that Kerry King story I told you about. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's the way that they hit the drums that makes them sound the way they sound. It's just, it's just as simple as that, you know. And that's so, so unique and so special to each. And that's true of each musician within the band. It's, just, it's a unique how the singer phrases his vocal, how he, where his pocket is within the vocals. And I, I worked with the band in, oh, damn, I can't remember their name. And it didn't really matter. I was just the engineer on it. And it was a band in Toronto. And the producer was a record company guy, A&R guy. And he kept trying to make the band. He said, I want you to play behind the beat. 
I want you to play behind the beat. And I was, like, doing lots of different kinds of stuff at that time, musically. And uh, I sat there as an uh, engineer, and I'm like, why are you trying to make them play behind the beat? I said, I want to sound like Led Zeppelin. And I'm like, but they, this band is this band. They can't be Led Zeppelin. And he, kept, and he would stop them in mid-take and make them slow down or try and, and drop a bit in and drop a bit in and drop a bit in. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I think he must have – I got fired off the project because he knew my dislike for the whole process, really, and, and my disinterested because it made no sense to me. I'm like, this is shit. I can't do this. This is not right. This is not how you make a record. If you don't let the band breathe and be themselves, where are they ever going to go? They don't know who they are. There is nowhere to go. Exactly. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. You made me think of Glenn Johns in a way that I haven't thought of it before, but can we talk about it for a second? Of course. Because what I think is really interesting is there, a lot of people think about miking techniques as a technical thing, like distances and angles and all that. And that's obviously a part of it, of course. But the way you're talking about it is it's an artistic choice. And so if I think about other miking techniques, like say space pairs or something, or uh, the way that metal producers will basically do a series of close mics and no real over, no real overhead overheads, I guess. It's designed more to hide the picture of the kit so that you can get a very specific, precise sound where it sounds like the artistic approach for Glenn Jones is the opposite of that. It takes something yeah. great and then showcase it. Yeah, and if the drummer didn't play good, it wasn't going to be good. That's the end of the story. No angles or measurements would fix that. 
No. I mean, the, the only thing that, the, the, I, the, you know, the, the positioning of the two microphones, which were, would have been Neumann 87s over the, over the kit, was critical in, in as much as they were equidistant from the snare drum. But, you know, and, and of course that could affect things in a drastic way. If you, you know, it could end up picking up one symbol so much that it was obnoxious and it, sh- it shouldn't be like that. But, you know, he managed to get away with it. And sometimes on some records you can hear that. Uh, occasionally you get to hear that. But I don't mind that either. I kind of like that because it's not quite right. I like things that aren't quite right sometimes. Most people that listen to records would never hear it because they don't listen to a record like I listen to a record. I, I've, I try not to listen to records like that. But if something's obviously a bit weird, like a symbol is obviously ridiculously loud, like, uh, on um, Can't Find My Way Home by... Blind Faith, there's a symbol on there, Ginger Baker symbol, it's so loud. But I love it, you know, it's just ridiculous, but I love it. I don't know if Glyn Johns did that record, mind you. I think that there's a lot of people make a lot out of mic position. If, if the mic, it's like, you can overdo it, you can't, it's really difficult to say, because sometimes you just get lucky. You know, you just happen to, like with the guitar, you know, you press bet it's probably, in my mind, is a, a Sennheiser and an 87, and you find the best speaker in the cone, you know, within the, all the speakers, and you mic that you mic that one's speaker, and you move the microphones a little bit to get a bit more top or a bit more bottom, and and that's it. Then it's down to the guitar player to make it sound good, to my mind. Yeah, I I completely agree. But I guess the part that's not luck is knowing when you got lucky and yeah, not yeah. not changing it. Yeah, abs- absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. You just get you know sometimes. You just get a lucky sound and you think, oh my God, that's a fucking great sound and you keep it forever. You know, you just, you don't know it's going to happen. It just happens. And Tom Allen, who produced Priest, well, Priest stuff, was a great advocate of that and a great great act doing that. You know, very off-the-wall kind of dude, very English, but would always come up with great sounding things. As as did um, Visconti with Bowie, you know, little techniques for microphone. I read one thing about that he did with, with Bowie, that I was like, fucking, that's a good idea. And so he's got Bowie there singing into this one microphone, and he's got another microphone down the hall, maybe 20 yards away or something like that in, in the studio. But that microphone, the faraway one, was set so that it only opened up when Bowie hit a certain amount of volume. So it was done with what's called a keypex, which is a noise gate. And it was set so in certain ways so that it triggered that microphone to open so that when he bellowed a note, the, the microphone created the different sound. You didn't have to put an effect on it. That, that actual setup. Clever. Fantastic idea. Yeah, I, I love that kind of innovative thinking. Yeah. I'm just wondering, is there ever a time or many times where you did get to that sound and you thought to yourself, I can get it even better. And you tried to make it even better and ruined it and could never get it back. <laughs> <laughs> during the recording process, probably not. Maybe during the mixing process, I'd be like... You're laughing, though, so you know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, yeah, no I'm laughing because, yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. Um I think that there may be some mixes where I've got a mix right and it's just like, oh, it's fantastic, and then try to recreate it and never, ever get near it again, albeit there may be things that aren't quite right about it. Within the actual recording of something, probably not. I probably would get something sounding as well as it could sound, and then once it worked within the track, I would be accepting of it and keep it, and then if there was any improvement to be made 
during the mix, I could maybe find something that would make it, you know, a bit better within the mix later. It's weird because with with Logic, uh, during the Southern Kijo record, I, I kind of fucked around with some repeat echoes and I was trying to learn something, how I did this. And then this, this repeat echo happened and I went, oh, fuck me, that's good. I was like, whoa, that's very good. And I kept it and I was like, wow. And I enhanced it and, then I'm, and I enhanced it and I made sure it sat just right in the mix and it stayed there forever. Now, how I did that, I'll never know. To be honest, I mean, I could go back and analyze it within logic, but I don't want to because I, I haven't got the brain power to do it. I just, I got it and I'm thought, that's in the record. Boom, done. It was a bit like Rocky's guitar era. It, you know, just happened. Man, that's good instincts. And I wonder, is that something that you had to be taught, like when to, when to back off? Or is that something that just came naturally to you? I think that's in, in pretty much instinctive. Because that's where a lot of people fuck themselves up. Yeah, I can imagine. I was lucky because working with people like Laguna, I don't know if you know who Kenny Laguna is, but Kenny manages Joan Jett. Guitarist for Joan Jett? Yeah, well, he's the manager and the producer and everything. Okay. And Kenny found, well, I didn't find Joan Jett. She was in The Runaways, obviously. and uh, But he took her from The Runaways and turned her into what she is today. Um, and he had another guy called Richie Cordell who worked with him on the, and Richie Cordell wrote Money Money. And I think we're alone now, um, back in the days of bubblegum. And Kenny was in Tommy James in the Shondells. Kenny played keyboards. And Kenny came to London and, and worked at Rampal Studios and lots of punk records. And me and Kenny became great buddies. And we worked together on lots of different things. And um, he was coming over there. He was on a bit of a wing and a prayer, just trying to get work and do as well as he could. And they finally found Joni and The Who and Bill Kirby helped him with the studio and, and, and Kenny was like, you know, but one, and one thing, and, and Kenny, was, Kenny was a great, a, just a great personality and character and him and Joni are, are like a, a legend really. And, um, but I remember him being in a studio one time and the studio manager came and came running in and was like, it's like, you know, what do you think? What do you think? I think it's a fucking great studio. And Kenny just looked at me and said, well, I haven't seen God today, meaning that nothing special happened. You know what I mean? I haven't, God's not here today. So, you know, Kenny was like that. He was like, special moments would happen and Kenny would jump on him and go, that's a fucking great idea. That's a brilliant idea, you know. And we would, but he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be impressed by superficial things. Like, oh, absolutely Like not. it's a cool studio. No, 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 he didn't care about that. He just, he knew when the music was right. Again, another person that, Integrity yeah. was all important. I feel like you can't you can't fake that. No. No. And you were talking about in the pre-interview about how Kenny was instrumental in you getting out on your own as a producer. Can you talk a little bit about your work with him and how that led you down your own path? Well, yeah, because Kenny Kenny had a friend called Steve Leeds who was something to do with MTV and worked for MCA Records as well. And um, Steve was looking for a producer for a, a band called the Iron City House Rockers. And, you know, and Kenny put my name forward on that project, which was very kind of him to do so. And he actually came and played piano on it as well. And I got the job and I went off and I made the record with a singer, singer a guy called Joe Koscheki, another great guy, good friends with Bruce Springsteen, funnily enough. He actually introduced me to Bruce Springsteen, which I'm eternally grateful for. Just to say hello to Bruce Springsteen was, you know, 
And that was funny because we were in a big studio in New York and we were talking to Bruce Springsteen and these guys are running around with microphones and all these different amps and all that. And Bruce just turned and said, I wish they'd just fucking plug me in and let me play. <laughs> and that made total sense to me. Kenny was great for me in, in that respect. And he bought me on, you know, he let me engineer all these records with him. It's a guy called Steve Gibbons in this country who had a few hits. And of course, Joan, Joan Jett, Bad Reputation album was, you know, very special for me as well to be able to do that record. So, you know, I'm eternally grateful to, to Kenny. And he's a, you know, he's a great producer. He's got a great ear. He can sing harmonies all day long. He can come up with all these different harmony background vocal parts because he loved the Beach Boys and all that stuff. So he's great at all that sort of thing. He's a great songwriter, songsmith, just an all-round good music person. Very, very good at, at what he did. So I learned a lot from Kenny, a lot. Why do you think he... Uh gravitated towards you like what was it about your relationship that i don't know again we, we just we just hit it off when i, I was just you a, just hit it off yeah we got on well you know and, and i i hopefully made his life easier or better and because i worked at the who studio which was also like helping him to be able to afford to record Joan Jet at that time because I didn't have a deal. You know, it, it, i was lucky enough to be there and to be the engineer and and, and we became friends just Straight off, became friends, and I even like flew to New York at one point with my wife, and and you know they put us up and looked after us and treated us like lords, you know. And I became friends with his wife as well. We all became friends, and we still are to this day, which is is lovely too. And I, I really appreciate what he did for me because you need a leg up sometimes, you know. You need someone to give you a break, and and he did give me a break that helped me a lot because that. You know, that gave me the confidence to believe that I could produce a record. And uh, albeit that I used techniques that I'd learned from all these other producers that I worked with on that particular album, it gave me a chance. And then obviously I led on to things like being in America, which I was totally starstruck by. Being in America, I was like a, a kid in a cookie shop. You know, I was like, I couldn't, everything was so incredible. And it still is pretty much to me. I mean, I love the place. You know, but then I got, I was, it gave me the confidence to be able to go when I got the opportunity to produce um, Metal Church, I, I had the confidence to do it, you know, albeit that when I was, I remember being in New York talking to Michael Alago, the um, A&R guy, and I think I had I had my bus, fare, I had my cab fare to the airport to get home. I was looking for work, literally. I had enough money to get to the airport to get home, and I had $70 to take him out to lunch. That's all I had in the world. And, and I was praying that lunch wasn't going to be more than $70. <laughs> Not $71.50. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I'd like to walk to the airport. <laughs> and I got just scraped in there, just scraped in. But that was a good. That was good. And then me and Kenny went and worked, of course, with all the Berserkly artists as well. I don't know, Greg King, um, the Rubenews, which was uh, Matthew Kaufman had a label called Berserkly Records down in Berkeley, California. And Matthew Kaufman was around, at, you know, like Jonathan Richmond was had a few hits in England and Matthew would come to England and do some recording and then we would go over there and record and, and Kenny took me along with him. So I got the opportunity to work with all these other bands and, you know, there was some great bands as well. So I, he really opened a lot of doors for me and gave me a lot of opportunities. Man, it really comes down to your relationships, doesn't it? I think so, because people either don't like you or they do like you, don't they? Yeah, and I feel like if they don't like you, they'll only work with you until a suitable replacement that they do like uh, materializes. Like I know there's some mixers who 
people don't like as people, but they make so much money for so many people. They do such a great job that people will tolerate them. But the moment somebody comes around that's just as good, who's actually cool to hang out with, they, they'll abandon ship. I've seen it happen many times. Mm. I could imagine that that would, that would be the case. Uh, and the thing about good friendships is as well that they last forever. You know, you know Glenn Tipton from Priest, as I say, you know, we still talk all the time. Uh, and he gave me, you know, obviously sin after sin, was, I was still learning my craft at that time, as I am now, to be honest. But then he came and said, come and do Defenders of the Faith with us. And I was like, I'd love to. You know, but he'd remembered me and, and he wanted me to come back because he liked me and I liked him. And, we, you know, we, um, as I say, we've been great friends ever since. And people do, you know, I'm sure people, they forget you if they don't like you. That's what, that, what really happens, I think. People just wipe you out of their minds and they move on, which is fine. I mean, you can't win them all, can you? No, no, I don't think you can win them all. And, and rightly so, you shouldn't. And if you fuck up, you need to learn why you fucked up as well, you know, and understand what might not be your fault. But if it is your fault, you've got to take it on the chin and fix it. Absolutely. You know, I was also thinking about this the other day, that when I first got into the industry, the advice from people that were more experienced than me was always, make friends with anybody, burn zero bridges. And... I understand what they're saying, and I do agree with that to some degree, but I also think that that's kind of unrealistic because you're not going to get along with everybody and you are going to burn some bridges at some point, no matter who you are. Yeah. I don't know a single person who has stuck around who hasn't had at least one problem with one person. And I think that the absolutely the real trick is to be able to navigate it when that happens and not let that affect everything else. Or if something bad happens to figure out exactly how to bounce back from it, but not to expect that nothing bad will ever happen or that you just magically won't piss people off because sometimes this industry is like navigating a minefield. Like, so there are some situations I've noticed that are almost designed to blow up in your face and not because there's any malintent, but just because there's so many competing interests, so many egos, there's, there's no way for someone not to get pissed off. There's, it's just a, impossible. You can't always please people. No, you can't. And, and, you know, and I think there's sometimes there's been times where I think I don't understand why I don't get on with that guy or that guy. I don't speak to that guy or that person anymore and I think that sometimes it's a case of Chinese whispers and misunderstandings as well and there are cases where I've worked with people that I would never want to work with again yeah of course well the, unfortunately the truth of the matter is that, that their music reflects their personality in my mind and therefore I don't like either of them and I don't mean that nastily in, in, with any you know not I, I don't wish them any ill whatsoever but I just wouldn't be able to work I wouldn't physically be able to work with couple of people spring to mind immediately ever again. And I wouldn't want to, I'd rather be destitute. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's some situations that are just not compatible, but I think it's good. It's good to recognize that though. That's, I think oh, that's, God, yeah. yeah. And if they're lucky and they're, or if they're successful and off they go and be successful, I'm like, great, he's good. Good for you, mate. I'm glad you're successful. Not that I've ever noticed it lasts very long with those people. Well, you never know though. I'll just say that that's something that, I had to grow up a little to start understanding that sometimes 
scenarios where <laughs> I don't like somebody or don't want to work with somebody ha- isn't because they're a bad person or anything. Sometimes you're just incompatible with certain people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't be compatible with everybody. No, definitely not. Definitely not. And I've been lucky like that because I, when I, I, you know, I was when I got started, I, I needed management, and I flew to America and tried to get management to to forward my career. And I was, it was a godsend that I met Doreen and Hernando Courtright, um, who were both in the music industry at that time. I think Doreen's now into real estate, and you know, they became like they became like my big brother and sister. They were just absolutely adorable people, you know, Doreen particularly just we just got on great and she had she had Tony Visconti Max Norman um uh, Eddie Kramer and all these guys you know and then I went in there and just talked to her and she said yeah we'll work with you and I was like really she was like yeah I was so made up I think I'd, I'd done Metal Church at that time so there was stuff and, and it was her that got me anthrax so because I went to Germany to work with um Accept a band called Accept a German band mm-hmm. and then um I mixed an album for them, and then I went on to do a couple of albums with Udo, the singer, which was a bit of a trip. <laughs> Funny times, but all good, you know, being in Germany. <laughs> and uh, somehow or other, Johnny C liked those records, and it was him that in- him he knew Doreen, and I got to work with Anthrax, which was and Doreen helped push through a lot of deals, suicidal thing, stuff like that. So Doreen and Ugly Joe, of course, which was you know, the, probably the biggest selling record I've ever done. Um, again, it was her connections and her friends and the people that she knew. and we, we just had this great rapport that went on. And it was so great because when I flew to do the first Ugly Kid Joe record, I got there. Uh, uh, there were two A&R guys, a guy called Bob Scorro and another guy called um, Bobby Carlton. And Bobby Carlton, bless his socks, is a beautiful guy. And I got there and I went to this hotel before I met the boys, um, I'd already met them once it, when I was mixing an album in, in LA and we'd had a chat and apparently I passed the trick question. There was a trick question. <laughs> do you know what it is now? I think it was something to do with sin after sin and, 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 and I'm not quite sure. I kind of said, they said, oh, la, la, and I said, it's, yeah, but it's a pretty shitty sounding record. And I think that was the trick question, but I'm not sure. I've got to love Whip Crane for all that stuff because he comes up with that stuff all the time. Crazy bugger. And um I got to the hotel and there was a big bag, like a big refuse sack behind the, the counter. And the guy said, oh, someone's left this here for you. And it's from the A&R department, uh, uh, Mercury Records. And it said on it, this is all the outboard gear you will need for this record. And I opened it and it was like pairs of flip-flops, shorts, <laughs> beach balls, <laughs> just, just stuff you wear you have on the beach. And I was like, oh, these guys are cool. We're going to have a good time. And we, when we did, we had the greatest time ever working with the ugly kids. So they were a delight to work with. It sounds like there's been a few key characters in your career that have served as like uh, keys, basically, that unlocked tons of stuff that came afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's strange because you don't realise. Like I, I did a couple of albums with a band called Prong, New York band yep. Prong. And Tommy, the singer, is a fantastic guy again. you know. And I love working with those guys. They were great. And then one day I bumped into Rob Halford, a, a music convention or something somewhere, and he came up to me and he said, Mark, he said, I love that record you've done with Prong. He says, those riffs are fucking great, aren't they? And I was like, I was like, wow, I didn't realise you'd even listen to it, Rob, you know. But he had, and he really loved it. So that was great. That was all good. 
you know, meeting, it was just good that those, that he appreciated what I'd done with prompt. Where did Mutt Lang come into the picture? Only reason I got to know Mutt Lang was because he was, he came to Rampal, the home studio, and I don't know who he was working with even now, but he was producing this band. And what I learned from Mutt Lang was you record everything and then figure it out in the mix. That's what he did. He used to record everything and figure it out in the mix. I think this was in the early days of his career. And so he just recorded everything. And he was probably only at that studio. For, what do you mean by everything? Well, any idea that anybody had, he would record it and say, okay. And if, even if he didn't think it was a great idea, he'd say, all right, it's not bad. Let's move on with this. So everybody was happy. They got their ideas put on, recorded, but then he would move them around later and, and make it all work. I mean, he's a, a predominantly a, a great songwriter and a, a, you know, and a, a great producer in his own right without a shadow of a doubt, you know. A bit mechanical for my liking, but 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 nonetheless still very innovative and, and has done some fantastic work. I have heard him referred to as Pro Tools before Pro Tools. Yeah, that's a great way Is of describing Is that accurate? Him. Yeah, I would say, well, knowing what I know about the way that he recorded Def Leppard and how that worked, etc. And, and you think that that totally would describe Mutt Lang in my mind because of the way that he would record guitars. Sometimes people said he recorded notes at a time and put them together. So um, that's a great way of describing him. And I think that to be able to have done it with tape makes it even more profound. It's insane to think about. It really is because the thing that, and that was at that time was when I went off to do Defenders of the Faith and they were all listening to Def Leppard because he had that big, that big fat snare drum. Oh yeah. And they, you know, and I was like, I wasn't, and I know now that obviously he, he sampled it in an AMS and that's how it worked. But I, and I didn't really know about AMSs at that time. And this, <laughs> this is a fucking great story. <laughs> so we went to Florida, right? And we recorded everything and we were overdubbing in Florida. And in this, this studio, there was a guy called Seth. And he, he had this thing. It's, uh, this, uh, this is gospel truth. He had this strobe light that you could send a signal to and it would make the strobe light flash and the strobe light in turn would trigger this metal arm and the arm would go like that. <laughs> and, and me and Tom looked at each other and we went, wonder what would happen if we put a drumstick in that hand and put a snare drum underneath it and tuned it, what it would be like. We're well, making history right there. <laughs> Yeah and, then, yeah, and then we put a glove on the metal hand as well. We had to have a glove, heavy metal glove. Yeah. And um, it would trigger and it would hit the snare and we mic the snare up so that we could take this extra snare sound and mix it in with the original drums. And that's exactly what we did. But it was incredibly laborious because if the snare drum... What year was this? Oh, God, whatever year Defenders of the Faith was. I'm looking it up. I don't know what year that was. I just, I need to, I need to know what year. Uh, yeah, uh, let me, I can probably tell you, I think about 83, 84. Because that's like, uh, that's, that sounds like, I mean, that is sampling before sampling. Well, but I think sampling may have existed, to be honest. I was just, I wasn't very aware of it. That was probably my mistake for not knowing that you could actually do that with an AMS. <laughs> January 4th, 1984. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so you put a glove on it and you blended it in with the mix. Yeah, but of course, when the if there was a snare fill, the metal arm couldn't keep up with it. You know, it would just <laughs> stop, and we had to go backwards and forwards. And I had to send a triggered signal to the light 
so that it didn't pick up more than it was meant to pick up from the original snare drum. So the initial signal up to I had to keep trimming it and fiddling with it to get it to key exactly right. So and we worked it all the way through the album. We did that and we mixed it. Then we mixed it in with the other drums and it gave it a nice fat sound, which everybody loved. That was fun. Did it did it sound different? I guess from no. the velocity of the of the machine. Yes, it could do. That's why it was imperative that we mixed it in with the original snare drum, so the original snare drum kept that velocity right. And so it was a, a delicate balance. Some songs it was louder than other songs because it worked well. You know, like uh, maybe something like Love Bites, which was on that album. It was a much fatter actual song defenders of the faith it was much more prevalent because you could get away with it there you know but if the song was fast and with a lot of feel on it you had to mix it down and just give it just tuck it in so it didn't affect the the vibe of the drummer which you know i i learned that that was a mistake to do because on a metal church album on the dark album i did i did sample the snare drum and use that and i in retrospect that was a mistake you know because it it didn't it it took away some of the feel of, of that. I mean, the record did all right. The boys loved it, and I'm still great friends with the boys. But uh, And I went on to do another album with them, but I, I regret having done that because I think that wasn't what was right for that kind of band at all at that time. But again, you know, I was learning. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you won't know till it's done sometimes. Or ever. Very true. Was there any latency between when the light went off and the arm came down? No, it was. It was. If, if it was, it was the speed of light. I guess it was so. It was so. <laughs> it tripped us all out. It was out, fast. It was fast, and we used to sit there watching it, and we would just sit, and we would laugh. We would laugh so much watching this fucking metal arm with the glove on it. Because now we would back, we would have filmed that now, and it would have been part of everything. We would have been able to show that off to everybody. But Tom was great like that. You know, we there's a, one of the sounds on, on on that album that it goes between uh, it's love bites and song, and we've got this effect that goes. <laughs> And it was like, well, what was that? What was that? Basically, was there was a hi hat count going on in that break, and Tom and I we got a big axe, and then we strapped a microphone on the axe, and we dragged it around the car park, and it made this sound. And I keyed it with the hi hat, so it went, and that was how we created that sound. People go, wow, how did you do that? It's just one of them things. Is that something where you guys would? say, I want to experiment with something or it would be more like a light bulb. I just got this crazy idea. Let's try this thing. Spur of the moment. Yeah, it would, it would start as a, let's try something. And then it, 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 it would manifest itself. Sometimes it didn't work. And, and then sometimes it, it would work, you know, and then you'd go, wow, that's fucking great. Or sometimes you go, oh, it doesn't work. Forget it. Move on. Let's try something else. But just because you knew that part of the song might need something to give it a little spark, you know. So you're already open to seeing what the possibilities are. Absolutely, 100%, always. Do you think that there's any point in a production or just making music in general where maybe it's wasting time to experiment? Like, where do you draw the line between this experimentation is the right thing uh, versus we're just fucking around right now? <laughs> um, I think again, because I'm sure I'm sure you've had experiences where it goes nowhere, right? Oh, absolutely! But you know where it's not working straight, pretty much straight yeah. away. And sometimes it's not until 
you get to the mix where you've put an idea down that it actually go, well, I mean, let's just see what that did do. And then you go, wow, what about if I just did that to it? That might take it somewhere else. And then you, you know, and then you, you find things that can work. I mean, I, that's one of the things that I like about logic is that you've got so many, and, and I don't use a lot of, you know, there's so many extra plugins that I probably should try that I haven't got around to trying yet. But there's, they're all at the tip, your fingertips to get. You can just try anything, and it takes seconds to try a different guitar sound here or a different guitar sound there. And they've got so many variables of those guitar sounds within it, within it that you know I find that that that, that can really help. Well, I, I've never quite understood why some people, by all accounts, they will. And I don't know how they do it. Uh, particularly, I was talking to somebody that was mixing a heavy metal album, a guy here in England. And I, I don't know who the band was or anything. And um, he was telling me how how he uh, reamped everything. And I was like, so you're telling me that the guy has played this guitar, right? This guitar part, this heavy as all hell. It's going, but when he played it, it went, ding, 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 ding. And he went, yeah, he said, this is the original. I said, well, how did it get any vibe? We're going, ding, 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 ding. He said, well, they just played it like that, and I'll make it sound better later. Then he reamps it all, puts it through all this different blah, 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 re-records it back, and it sounds heavy as hell. And I go, oh, well, it's more than one way to skin a cat, I guess. The reamping thing is, uh, I've always had uh, mixed feelings about it because I've definitely been in scenarios where it saves the day. Yeah. The original guitar tone wasn't that good like say you're mixing something that you didn't record and the guitar tone they gave you is not wonderful but you got a di reamping can make the difference right there it can yeah totally save your ass but i've also been in scenarios where say i've been the artist and working with a producer uh, i've experienced this where the producer is really into guitar tones and we're going on a hunt together. And 10 days later, we've got a tone and it's phenomenal. <laughs> like a hunt, like trying out like a combination of like 15 guitars with 15 amps with like five cabs for like 10 days. And uh, that's that sort of thing. And you arrive at a tone and, uh, the whole time they know in their head they're going to reamp it later. So it makes me wonder why did we sit there? Like, why did we do this? It never computed to me what the point was of going through all that trouble if you're just going to change it later. And then I've always felt like reamping, it takes away a few percentage of awesomeness from the signal. Absolutely. Yep. However, it's a great failsafe. It's like a good parachute for when there's a bad job done. Yeah, yeah. And and, and sadly, uh, that I, I appreciate what you're saying, and I think that, that makes total sense. And I, I expect there are occasions when that people spend 10 days and they realise that the sound they had at the beginning was better than all of them. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. The scenario <laughs> I'm thinking of right now, we actually, we got the sound within the first day. Yeah. Uh, and then he wasn't cool with it. So, yeah. so yeah. we went, and then the sound that we got ten days later still wasn't as cool as the sound that happened on the first day. But no one knew how to get that sound back. <laughs> See, I find I find that. I mean, I I, I knew of a band in this country. They were called um, Little Angels, and they <laughs> they had a guitar sound on something, and they they wanted to get it back. They 
and we, it became a story. They rented a car, a particular car, to put the amplifier in, and they spent like days putting this amplifier in a car outside the studio with all the leads, micing it all up, and that was how. And they got this sound back. And I'm like, do you really think that anybody gives a fuck? You know, did you <laughs> if you played it good, it would make a lot more difference. So a lot of times we have you have scratch guitars, and you might go, let's just use a scratch guitar here, and you know, and we might keep it, we may not keep it. Quite often, the scratch guitar, the vibe on it, and the feel on it was so superior to when you might have gone back and tried to get a nice, fat, heavy sound, that you'd still keep that rough guitar sound and mix it in with it as well to give it that extra je ne sais quoi. So, again, there's no hard and fast rules to any of this, I don't think. But I, I do wonder how, if you're meant to be playing, you go, it's like, really? Is that not going to have the same vibe, is it, really? So, I mean, you can use a software simulator, but it, it doesn't... One thing that I think people forget is that guitar players play to the tone. Yes. At least good good guitar players do. Precisely. Yeah, so even if you're using a great amp sim for getting the chug tone, it's still not going to react the same way as uh, a different amp would. So you're going to play it differently. I've thought... Again, no hard and fast rules, but I really think that reamping is best for saving saving a bad situation. Like it's it's a good backup, but uh, I've never heard a reamp be better than a great miking job that's done right then and there. I have heard it be better than a bad miking job, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would work. Yeah. I, I, again, you know, it's when you get to the mix, then it, it, everything, you know, everything can change at the mix moment. But invariably, if you've got good rhythm guitar sounds, that's a great start. You know, you, you know that they're good rhythm sounds. So you don't even have to EQ them. You just put them up, and there they are. You go, that's great. That's a good place to be. It's like I... I Oh, I listened to your podcast with Bobby Clearmarin. Oh, that's a good one. Ah, oh, he sounds like a fantastic guy. He sounds like, I mean, he knows his shit for a start. And he's about the same age as me and he started about the same time as me. And he knows his shit and, and everything he says is pretty much spot on. Everything he says is pretty much spot on. But you know that if if I was to send him something to mix, I know he, he would just balance it. Because he brings out what has happened within the band. That's his job. Not to, He brings out what's already there. It's just the way that he balances it that makes it sound great. It's just enhancing them by being great at balancing. And, and, I, and he is great at balancing. And I, I just love his modesty and his, he seems to be a very calm individual. Uh, it seems to be very happy, actually. He comes across as being quite content. I should imagine he would be. I was say, one thing that I think you guys share in common and... I've noticed this also from a lot of people who have stuck around is that they have an enthusiasm for it that never dies where you can, you see it sometimes with people as early as 10 years in, they'll start to burn out and it doesn't mean that they're going to quit, but they might stagnate and just for instance, stay at the local level forever or stay at a, a baby band level forever or do okay in one niche, but never, ever, ever expand from there. And uh, what I've noticed is people who have an exciting long career tend to 
always be enthusiastic about it somehow. Yeah, and even when there's times when it's not going as well as you'd like it to go, you still go back to the things that made you feel great to keep keep you confident and happy about it. And you have to work with you have to work with good people. That the bottom line is you can't. A friend of mine once said, and it was a great saying, and I still use it to stay. You can't soar with the eagles if you work with turkeys, and it's so true. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. (laughs) But it's so true, you know, and and I've been very, very lucky to work with some fantastic people that, you know, that it's it's made my life easier and made made my job easier. But that just makes you have to be good at what you do as well because there's always someone's waiting to take your place, like you so rightly said earlier. So that brings up a question. How have you dealt with... uh, harder times? Like how have you kept your, cause obviously uh, this is an up and down sort of business. I mean, I guess any business would be up and down, but especially, especially this one. Yeah. Well, totally this one. I mean, it's definitely a, a case of feast or famine. And um, th- there have been times where, you know, there's no one's banging on my door to ask me to do this or to ask me to do that. And and, and when you're a, a man that's got a wife and got kids, you've got to put bread on the table and it, it becomes part of your life to have to do that. And what I, I created a business that sustained us and kept us alive, you know, and it wasn't a business that I enjoyed in any way, shape or form. The only thing I enjoyed about it was being successful at it. And, and basically it was a, an online business that sold office supplies. And I thought, this is the shittiest thing I could ever do in my whole life. And and I, I hated it. But I thought, if I'm going to do this, I better be fucking good at it. So I built a website, which was one challenge, which I did. When was this? Oh, God. I started this. I started it about 20 years ago. Okay. It started. So it's been it's been on and off. But so I started it. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I better be fucking good at it. And then as I started it, I, I mean, it was harsh because I was literally walking the streets, banging on people's doors to get work. You know, it was horrible business as well. It's like, really? It's not that exciting. Not sexy at all. <laughs> Compared to working with Judas Priest. Well, yeah, exactly. And funnily enough, I remember Glenn ringing me one day when I was putting shit in boxes. I was loading boxes up and Glenn rang me and we from Priest and we were chatting and he, he said to me, and I always remember people that make statements that make you go, mm. and he said, uh, he said, how are you doing anyway? I said, I'd be all right if I wasn't putting shit in boxes. And he said, it puts food on the table, doesn't it? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, there you go, Mark. Get on with it. And funnily enough, I remember Ken Laguna saying to me, Ken Laguna said to me, before he was producing records, he's like, I used to have to put, I used to load boxes. That's what I had to do. I had to load boxes to put food on the table. Now I'm a producer. Now I'm going, fuck me, I was a producer. Now I'm loading boxes. I've gone around the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> Done it all wrong here. But doing it, I thought, well, I'm gonna be, if I'm going to do it, I better be good at it. So I went at it and I got customers like Google and Facebook and Expedia. And I got big customers, you know. And so that vindicated or, or made me feel not quite as bad about it. And, you know, I turned it into a million-pound business. So it put food on the table. I was employing people. And then a few years ago, I amalgamated it with another company. And then literally, I don't know, um, three weeks ago, I terminated the whole thing and said, right, I've had enough of this. I don't know. Because I'm doing other music stuff now as well and always have done. Bits here and bits there, you know, albeit that it doesn't pay 
like it used to. It doesn't matter. It just makes me feel so much more alive and so much more of a, a person. It makes me feel like my children will respect me more, I think, if I'm doing something like that rather than a stupid... I'm not saying it's stupid because it did put food on the table, you know, and I have to be grateful for that. But it wasn't the best time of my life. I didn't have a great time doing it, you know. It, it's, it, it was difficult. And, and everybody has hard times in their lives, you know, and so I think that's a measure of how you come through it, you know. And, and I was very... My wife had an accident three years ago where she got hit by a car and, and suffered brain damage, but thank God she's alive today and, and she's getting better and doing really well. But, again, that's a, a huge strain on a family when you've got a 14-year-old boy, well, he's 17 now, when he was 14 when it happened. And, and Tommy was like, oh, my God, you know, I don't know, I don't know how I'm supposed to deal with this. And Molly, my daughter, and my old daughter, all these people all came into the equation and all these other people, friends from this area, that area, all came together and helped us all through that period. And now we're coming out the other side of it, you know. And, and life's like that, though, isn't it? And it's like you've got to keep punching, keep punching. Uh, there was a, I went to, about 20 years ago, I went to... Czechoslovakia or wherever it was, where there was a, the war just out um, in Macedonia, there was a war. And I went there to deliver, to deliver goods in a, in a convoy. And I met a guy called George on this trip. And George now, George works in charity and he, he takes, he's built a big centre in Chernobyl or just outside Chernobyl in Chernigov for kids that have all been affected by what happened to them in Chernobyl. I mean, there's the fallout from that is ridiculous. And I went with George to there and saw all these poor kids and one thing or another. And George is like a hero to me. And whenever I speak to George, he just says to me, keep punching, Mark, keep punching. And that's, you know, and I always think that, keep punching. You've got to keep punching. You can never stop. Is that the mentality that you kept while the shit was going down? Yeah, I had to keep punching, always. Always keep punching and be there for your kids, you know, and be there for everybody around them. And, and don't, it's hard because a lot of things make you... It's hard not to let anybody see all that. You've got to keep... You got to, I always remember my old man, he always seemed to keep everything together. Nothing seemed to phase him. Mm-hmm. And I was, always thought, that was fucking good that he managed to do that because he had hard times too. So I, I try to... But I want my kids to see me being... Because like you so rightly said, when I'm talking about music and all the things that I've done in music, when I, I went down the pub the other day, I was, I was chatting to some people about some of the stuff that I'd done. And I'm, I can feel myself become this different person, this elated, joyful, happy, grateful person that's just like so got so much more to give to people. So it's imperative that I surround myself with that music. And I've got a few little acts now that I've found. I've got a little girl singer that Robert from... Robert Trujillo really loves as well. I've got this kid. She's a fantastic little singer. And I'm now starting to say, right, how can I make that work? How can I make that work? And how can I... So, I, you know, I've got a lot of different things going on in my head like that. And as I said to you, I've got the thing with Benji that I'm talking about doing as well from Skin Dread, which would be great. Um, and, and the other thing is I, I'm, I'm now going to start being much more active about working with bands and, and saying, no, click. <laughs> Like I said before, I really do think that bands are much more receptive to that now than they were even 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, the, the no-click thing is uh, is spreading. By the way, on the topic of Chernobyl, interesting that you bring that up. That's, uh, that's kind of a near and dear topic to my heart because um, my family was in Poland when that happened. My dad was doing some concerts 
And mm-hmm. we just happened to be, be there, family trip to oh my God. Poland. And, uh, and yeah, so the Chernobyl exploded. And uh, even though it didn't happen in Poland, I mean, it's basically right next door. So the whole country got shut down. Uh, airports were shut down. The food supply got interrupted. So we couldn't order food. We couldn't eat anything. Suddenly there was military oh everywhere. We got shipped on a train, which is kind of weird for a Jewish family in Poland. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get it? Basically getting put on a train, like a World War II era train by armed guards. But it was, uh, I mean, I'm talking about something that happened when I was really young. So I don't remember it super clearly. I just remember... Mm. We couldn't eat any food. There was a lot of military. It was super scary. We got shuttled around. And then for, I, I remember the last time when we were finally leaving uh, that the airplane had a military convoy leading to it and then armed guards on it. I guess it was a fucked up time period. But uh, yeah, I got uh, radiation testing for the next wow. several years after that. Did you? Yeah, I don't glow yet, so I think I'm all right. I think I'm all right. I think you'll be all right by now. Yeah, yeah. it was. I, I was. Um, I was totally astounded by the impact it had on Chernikov, which was a town probably 20 miles from Chernobyl. Uh, it was, uh, and and what George and his wife did for those people and the children there is nothing short of f- phenomenal. I call him St. George because he's such an incredible bloke. He's like 85 and he's still going there looking after these people. But when I saw some of the effects on the people that there, the children, and the way that they, it, uh, it just leaves you. It's crazy. It just humbles you, you know, beyond. Yeah, the we weren't even there. We were hundreds of miles away, and it was still serious. So it can I can only imagine what it was like for people who were closer. I know that, for instance, my parents didn't let me get X-rays at the doctor for. Wow. Forever. It wasn't until I was an adult that I finally was like, you know, I'll take the risk. Let's let's uh, let's take an X-ray. Um, kind of want to know if there's anything wrong with me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Might as well find out. But it's funny, isn't it? Our life does all those things, too, you know, and they all Im- impact. You. I think you have to have that that kind of rounded experiences of life, you know, where, where some people have it early in their days, some people middle, some people have it at the end of their lives. You know, I, I speak to Glenn Tipton now and, and I, I don't know, you know, everybody seems, knows that Glenn's got Parkinson's disease and, 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 you know, he suffers from it. And, you know, then, then he fell over and broke his foot and then he done something to his back. Then he got run over. I mean, this bloke has been, I said, if you didn't have bad luck, you wouldn't have no luck at all. Which, <laughs> you know, and he's like, yeah, I know. He says, but I'm lucky, aren't I? And I was like, you're lucky. And he goes, yeah, he says, I've got my grandchildren. He says, I've got my friends and my wife, you know, and I've got this and that. And he says, I'm a lucky guy. I'm a lucky Jimmy, he says. And I say, you know, man, you fucking blow me away. You're a man and a half. I love you. Did he always have that kind of attitude? Yeah. He's always been an exceptional person in so many ways. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at all. Is that pretty common among those uh, historical bands that they're kind of filled with historical people? Or do you find that it's uh, that sometimes it doesn't matter? Like sometimes the people... Well, you said earlier that the... You feel like the personality sometimes matches the music. Yeah. 
Well, I think it does. I think I think that I, I, I've probably been really fortunate in, in, in as much as I've rubbed shoulders with so many people that are of that ilk, that are that special, you know, like the Whit Cranes of this world, you know, Whit's a, a terminal, a, a, you know, he's a, a terminal, I was going to say tramp, tramp, but <laughs> he's a vagabond. <laughs> he looks like a tramp. <laughs> but, you know, what a, a unique person, you know, that he is so unique and so special that I've been privileged for him to be one of my best friends for so long, from so long ago, you know, that, that and I introduced him to Rob Halford and Rob came and sang on their record and Glenn Tipton and we've all, you know, everybody knows everybody and Rob uh, Trujillo and we're great friends as well. So, uh, and all of those people are all great. You know, we could all be in a room together and we would all have probably the best time ever because we'd all get on so well. I, I just happen to get on with all these people great because I like them. I'm sure there's a lot of people, like we said earlier, that I probably wouldn't get on with quite so well but yeah I, I, I think that's true they're so unique these people Tommy Lee a unique dude you know but a great character someone you'd like to go out to dinner with and hang out with and have a you know go and play golf with or whatever like that it's people like that just Mike Muir is a great example of a person like that that I've you know forever hold in highest thing so yeah I'm a, I'm a lucky boy from that point of view yeah man I've noticed the same thing from the people I grew up around or people I've worked with that the more interesting their output is, the more interesting they are as people. And it's actually pretty rare in my experience to meet somebody who's an incredible artist or something, or an incredible entrepreneur, you know, something like that, that requires super high level uh, creativity and uniqueness. Mm. It's, rare for them to do something great and then be kind of boring uh yeah yeah unmemorable people yeah it would be disappointing wouldn't it i think yeah it's rarely ever happened it's the the exception well uh yeah. anyways mark i think this is a good place to stop it okay. it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking to you it's been a pleasure talking to you too i don't i don't really know your history very much but i would like to know it I'll give you the the shortened version. Come from a musical family. Dad's a conductor. Was in a in a band that got signed to Roadrunner for three albums. Roadrunner and Century Media. We did a death metal band. We toured the world a bunch. Did that whole thing. What was the band name? It was called Doth. Probably never heard of it. So did that. Then also have produced a bunch and and engineered and some mm -hmm. decently known metal bands. And then about five years ago, started URM, which uh, the online school. And right. here we are. The podcast has been going in parallel to it. Yeah, and, and you, you're enjoying every minute of it, I should imagine. Interestingly enough, I never thought I would, but uh, I kind of like doing this better than I enjoyed doing the band or production, which... Wow. I never would have thought back when, you know, when I was doing guitar as my main thing, if you had told me that this is what would happen, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's great that it has, isn't it? I mean, Absolutely. You must be so happy that it has worked out like this. It's, it suits me way better. Um, there were lots of issues I had with doing a band professionally or mm. 
there's reasons for why production or mixing isn't, it's not that I dislike it or have any problem with it, but there's intricacies of doing that for a living that aren't right for me because of my personality type, I think. And however, uh, my expertise is in music. So it was kind of weird to work so long at something and then realize I didn't really want to do the thing I had worked for. And then when I figured this out, it kind of satisfied it all because I've been able to use all the expertise I built up over the years, all the connections I built up over the years, like everything kind of came together. It's like a perfect storm. So yeah, I'm very happy this worked out. And and also what you're doing, it it, it hopefully, hopefully it helps everybody that aspires to be doing what the likes of Bobby Clearmountain and yourself and I do. It gives them, uh, you know, some kind of insight to it and maybe confirm some of their thoughts and their beliefs that help them move forward and be better at what they do. Absolutely. Well, so since I came up in the classical world, my experience is that art is something that's formally taught and passed on. And it doesn't mean that artists can be formally created, but at least the disciplines are passed on in a way that's recorded into history but this genre of music that we're in i wasn't there at the beginning of it but uh i mean i got in in the 90s and Mm -hmm. what i noticed was that nobody was really passing it on to anybody except for in very very limited capacity like an intern learning from somebody great which is cool but it i felt like in some ways it was going to, to me, if I played it out over decades in my head, that was going to hurt hurt the genre overall. Absolutely. Whereas every other genre on earth, uh, you can study formally. There's a way for them to pass that knowledge down. There was zero for rock and metal. So my hope was that we could uh, do our part to create that, which is kind of weird because rock and metal is supposed to be non-formal and rebellious and all that stuff at its core. But at the end of the day, technique is technique, right? So Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And be able to capture that technique is is exactly that as well. And and equally, the the kids of today, and again, no disrespect, that they go and I say to them, what do you study? They go, I'm studying record production. And I go, well, how do you study record production? How do you do that? They're doing it at university. And they say, I'm going to go and record. I had to, one of the kids said to me, I've got to go and record a snare drum for part of my lesson. He said, but I, I don't know how to do it. And I was like, well, I'm not surprised. You're in trouble right at the beginning. But there you go. But it's- we, uh, just so you know, we, one comment that we get all the time at URM mm-hmm. is, wow, I learned more in two months with you guys than four years at this huge audio university. And the thing that we do that's super important I think key. My experience is that the only way that I got better was when someone who did it in real life, who was really good, showed me. That's how people get better. And I also went to a school. I went to Berkeley. And so I know what it's like to, I know what it's like to be mentored by somebody great. And I know what it's like to be mentored by somebody that's not great. I know the difference. And so what we try to do is get people who have done it for real 
to pass it on. Not It's not just anybody. And that's been very successful for us. And I think it's why our students do well, as opposed to your regular audio university that's not great. Yeah. Do you have practical workshops for them as well then? Uh, yes. Obviously, not right now. But, uh, but, uh, it, it started that way. Um, it started as me doing these things in person. Wow. So I'd go to a city, I'd find an artist who was well-known enough and we'd take over a studio for like 50 hours and sell like 10 seats. And basically it's like a paid pseudo internship where we walk through every single step. But like with a real with a real artist as opposed to just some local band, it started like that, and those results are kind of what informed it. And so, uh, even if a lot of it can't be done in person, the we're, we do everything possible to uh, to get people doing things in real life, and then we also do in person events when when possible. Brilliant. Well, I think it's probably going to be very successful for a long time. Hope so. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. And it's been a delight, delightful chatting to you. Likewise. Hopefully we'll meet in person one day. Yeah, man, before 2027. Yeah, why before then? Because quarantine. <laughs> oh, you think it's going to last that long? <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding. I, I, I do think it's going to last till middle of 2021. Yeah, I think it probably will, particularly in America at the moment. Yeah, uh, Americans going to other countries, uh, I don't, I don't foresee it happening till next year. So uh, I don't either. Scary times, eh? Yeah, but there have been scarier times. Yep, they have, they have indeed. All right, thank you very much for everything. It's lovely meeting you. Likewise, man. Have a good one. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.